This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. So far, like Michael Bivens at the time of the filming of the Boys to Men Motown Philly video, I have heard zero music from Sudden Impact. Not the original recipe 1991 version. Not the five guys in the video. I don't think I actually can hear the music of Sudden Impact because it's locked in a vault at Capitol Records. I've heard White Guys' quick verse on the East Coast family song One For All For One, and they sound good, but I haven't heard any full songs because whatever they recorded is locked in a vault at Motown Records, which distributed music from Michael Bivens' Biv 10 label, which doesn't exist anymore. I haven't heard any music from The Outsiders either, because whatever they recorded under that name is the property of Sony Music, which distributed Boys to Men's Stone Creek label, which also doesn't exist anymore. I have heard some of the songs the guys recorded as Outsiders for Life, after Aaron and Noel Kane left the group and Jimmy Marble and Jason Dowdy joined. It's a little harder than I was expecting, a little angrier, a little more Timbalandy, because it was the year 2000 and everything was more Timbalandy back then. It was the law. But from the original five, I have still heard no music. But thanks to Jason and Tim Bird, I have made contact with Todd White and Alan Healy. And before we speak, I ask them whether they have the other major thing I'm missing. Maybe the biggest piece of the puzzle so far. The thing that put this story into motion. The two special poster. The picture that got Michael Bivens to sign them. They have it. And before we speak, they send it to me. So now I have it. I'm going to break it down for you. Pixel by pixel, pegged gene by pegged gene. I'll talk about it with Todd and Alan, and I will get the sudden impact story from their perspective. I'll do a little digging as to whether one of their later songs, Who Are You, was a diss track. And if so, who was getting dissed, and why? Plus a conversation with a voice you could not escape in 1991, I'm going to catch up with Freedom Williams of CNC Music Factory, who is, as always, going to make you sweat. This is Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. White, Alan Healy, holy cow. I cannot believe I'm talking to the both of you. This is this is nuts. Um, how, first of all, how are you? Good, man. Happy to be alive. We're both good. I'm speaking with Todd and Alan over Zoom. They're both in their individual homes. They live about 30 minutes away from each other in Virginia. And as I talk to them, I'm reminded of something their Outsiders for Life bandmate, Jason Dowdy, told me about them. One, that Todd is the hard charger of the group, the engine. And two, that Alan Healy was their street cred. Here's what he said about that. Just, you know, like from his, the family he's from and the people he knows in the area, like he's kind of down with, you know, some some people from the streets, <laughs> put it that way. You know what I mean? I don't actually know what Jason means, but of course now I'm expecting some kind of Virginia Beach Sopranos character, a tough guy. And maybe he is, but right now over Zoom, the two of them could not be nicer. 
Maybe they've mellowed with age, or maybe they're just happy to be talking about this stuff. Either way, you will believe how Todd White met Alan Healy. How did Todd White and Alan Healy meet? Over a girl, <laughs> actually. I think I started dating one of Todd's ex-girlfriends and I got told that Todd White wanted to talk to me. And so I was like, really? So then he told me, I met him and he was like, you know, treat her good, she's a good girl type deal. And me and him actually became really good friends through this. And then we, those girls disappeared and our friendship kept on. So it's kind of really interesting. Girls, man. Todd, my understanding is that that is how you met Aaron Kane. Yeah, <laughs> it was too. It was. Yep. Todd, how many girlfriends did you have? <sighs> I didn't have a lot of girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, friends that were girls. Um, yeah, friends that were girls. I don't know, man. Um, I had to get rid of a lot of that stuff, Dave, so I could make room for new memories. Have you noticed that everyone involved with Sudden Impact or Michael Bivens says my name back to me when they answer a question? Hayden and Yvette did it too. I, I can't help but wonder whether that was part of the training Michael Bivens put them through. Anyway, it works. When these guys were teenagers though, Todd was a bit of a wild child. That was an energy Alan really clicked with. Our parents are both majors in the army. So very structured lifestyle. And then you have some people that go into that lifestyle, I'd say. And then you have guys like us that completely fought against our dads and hated it. So neither of us joined the military. We went, I asked my mom, who's Vietnamese, um, mom, I don't want to do the Air Force. And she was like, what do you want to do? I said, I want to hang out with Todd. And, you know, you know, she's like, follow your dreams, do whatever you want to do. So it was a, it was a different, you know, but Todd was just that guy, man. He was just somebody that always people were talking about him because he's either pissing them off or they liked him. Either you like Todd or you hated Todd. Todd, how does that feel to hear that? It's cool, man. You know, I, I'll tell you this, man. Um, you know, we grow old, man. We grow apart, man. And uh, well, I, not really apart, but like with me and Alan, man, we can go like, you know, a week, two, three, four, a month without talking to each other and, and call and pick right up where we left off, right where we left off, man. You know, and uh, it's cool, man. You know, it was a real good bond there. Still is. It's always been. It's always been real, you know, but, you know, you got... Life happens, you know? How were your parents with your decision to pursue music? Oh, they didn't care. Whatever. <laughs> as long as he does something with himself, you know what I mean? <laughs> what kind of kids were you? What kind of teenagers were you? We were you wild. Good kids? Bad kids? Wild kids? <laughs> I, I will tell you, I was good all the way till about when I started hanging out with Todd. I was started getting where he was not in school. Ninth grade, he was out. I got a call and it would be Todd telling me, hey, call in sick, we're gonna go to the beach. We're going to write the, you know, then he started, it was all the music and being around him. You never knew what to expect with this guy. All right. We're a lot of parties we weren't allowed to come to locally. And that all changed once we got into Boys the Men's video, of course. All right. Let's back up here a little bit and talk about how Too Special, the first version of Sudden Impact, came together. We know Todd White met Aaron Kane at a party when they were about to get into a fist fight over a girl. We know that the original version of the group was Todd, Aaron, and another guy named Eric. What we don't know is how Alan entered the fold. I'll kind of tell you kind of what happened for me to get in this group. Todd and I were always kind of just friends that acted crazy. I mean, if I want to do summer laugh, I go hang out with Todd. Todd was always a damn nut, you know, carried through all the way to when we're this age now. My son loves to go hang out with Todd just because Todd's wild. All right. So I was in Washington State and I got this phone call about and he, Todd played me a song over the 
over the thing and it was in a group called Too Special Tight, you know, and I was like, and I said, I said, that sounds pretty damn good, man. I actually enjoyed that. So he told me that the two guys were getting ready to move and he needed a guy in the group. And he was like, if you want to come back to Virginia, you know, I'll, you know, I'll put you in this group. And so I was like, all right. I just want to chime in here and remind you that this level of wheeling and dealing, these potential cross-country moves and personnel changes, these are all being negotiated among 16-year-old boys. And Aaron and them didn't really know me too well. And I came in and it was kind of a little bit of a first, like, oh, he's Todd's guy, you know, and this helps Todd, you know, decisions. Now it's his best friend type thing. And so we got together and I told him when I got in the group, I wanted to, you know, not just do local shows. I wanted to start hey, let's make this big. Let's do something. And so me and him started, We he had, the, I would say, a lot of the talent. Todd has always been really good at writing hooks. Todd, what was the name Too Special all about? How did that? I have no clue. I mean, <laughs> you, man. I mean I, it's catchy. I, I wish I could remember, man. I, I honestly have no clue, man. You know, even the song, I look back at the song, please be mine, be my girl, please be mine, dun, 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 my girl, like we was begging. <laughs> you know, it's just... But we were, man. You think you're 16 years old, man. You know what I'm saying? I do know exactly what he's saying. But what I'm dying to know about is how they made the decision as two 16-year-old boys to take their poster, which again, we're going to talk about later in the show, and fly all the way across the country to try something. What I didn't know is that getting a record deal wasn't just a happy accident. It was the fulfillment of a promise. So let's talk about the trip to Los Angeles for Marvin Gaye's Walk of Fame ceremony. Um, did you drive? Did you fly? What, what did you Did you tell your parents? Well, we yeah, didn't we tell flew. our parents. We asked everyone to go. So we asked Todd's mom, I'll tell you, was like our manager. She pretty much put up every bit of money, anything for Todd. She would put up whatever. She just wanted Todd not to go into jail, you know, be somebody. And I would tell you, music probably saved his butt from going to jail straight up because me and Todd both looked at each other and you can't sing from jail and make money. So we were like, you know, at least nowadays you might be able to, but not back then. So we were kind of like, hey, let's go do this. I went and talked to my mom and my mom will tell you to this day. I asked her and I slammed. My father had a, you know, we lived in Germany, so we had a Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. We had a Mercedes-Benz. I asked her, let me go with Todd. She said no. And I slammed the Mercedes-Benz door so hard and slapped her door window smashed, just went straight down. And she looked at me and she was like, you know, just yeah. pissed off. So I go to Todd and, and she comes back the next day and talked to Todd's mom and said, Alan, I work hard for my money. I'm going to give you this money. If you go to L.A., come back with something. And I was like, I promise you, I'm not going out there just to do nothing. I'm going out there to come back with something. They didn't get a recording contract off a poster because they were lucky. They got it because Alan promised his mom he would. And these guys are men of their word. Cecil Jenkins, on the other hand, Marvin Gaye's friend and local music promoter, might not have been as good a guy as I thought. And so Todd and I are out there. Supposedly, he's going to take care of us, okay? We're going to go out there. I'm going to take care of This guy disappeared on us. The first night, me and Todd decided because he left us there and just left us in a hotel. We were kind of just, I think, his paycheck to get to L.A., so we get out there and we just get left and like we're supposed to be staying with him. But guess what, guys? I can't get you in the place, yada, yada. So we were like, you know what? Screw it. Let's walk around L.A. We're out here. So, you know, I'm a military brat. So I'm like, let's go. I've been in Germany. I've been in Paris. We can make this. Alan Healy and Todd White are 16 years old, more confident and resourceful than I will ever be. We go out there and this guy's up on the stage of Marvin Gaye's, you know, family. So we're up there at the start. We're like, God, man, this dude, 
kind of just dissing the hell out of us, really, you know, honestly. So we're Mike Bivens comes up and runs next to us and stands like watching what's going on. And Todd sees him. And I remember Todd's like, yo, Alan, give him the poster. And, you know, he walks off. So I walk up to him like, yo, man, this is a poster. And he's like, I mean, get that shit out of my face. And I'm like, what? Yeah. I was like, wow, this guy just told me to. I go back and tell Todd. I'm like, yo, this, he goes, what he's saying? I'm like, dude just told me to put get that shit out of his face. And Todd looks at me and goes, give me that. And he runs back over there. And Mike's like, hey, man, I I didn't know, man. I thought that was a new kid poster. And he asked me to sign it. You know, like, it's like kind of a diss, like, because they were supposed to be like new kids from Maury Star <laughs> shit. So he got kind of pissy. And then he goes, no, okay, my bad. So he points to Todd and tells Todd, hey, come over here. And so we, you know, Todd points to me and we both go over there. And he's like, man, I'm so sorry. I thought she was this group. So he brings us up to Motown Records and we go right into the president's office, Gerald Busby's office, like walk up, like, man, me and him have a poster and one song, please be right mine. Right into it. Right into the office. And I'm sitting there like amazed that we're in this guy's office. I'm, oh my God, you know? And so he starts telling Gerald how this is going to be my new group, another group after another bad creation of Boys to Men. This is my new group. And so he starts asking, can you sing like this? And I didn't, man, I'm like, if I'm at a job, you ask me if I can do something. Oh yeah, I can do it. We can do whatever. So I sell our group, me and Todd are sitting there and we just keep talking and he's like, hey, look, I don't know what you came out here to do, but you've accomplished it. Go back to Virginia and go home. Go home. I'll call you. What I love about everyone's version of this story is that nobody has told me what happened between Michael Bivens looking at the two special poster and Michael Bivens driving Todd and Alan to Motown Records. And I think nobody's told me what happened because nothing happened in between. He really did just see the poster and make the decision. And Motown was just as quick to jump. Gerald Busby asks if you can sing. Does he at any time hear you sing at that point mike says don't worry about it i got these these are my guys they're going to be able to so me and ty didn't have to have to sing in the in the office at that point they have a meeting with motown records they get michael bivens number and a promise that something will happen and they call that number right away we before we left we called that dude in the morning like i think we called mike at seven in the morning and he's like dude it's yeah. me it's my number go home trust me <laughs> then we go back to Virginia and we're telling all Aaron and all them, hey, guys, we got some. We got to tell you all we got something. Trust me. And before they head home, they have one last conversation with Cecil Jenkins. You know, we go back to our Econo Lodge and that dude calls us up and goes, hey, did y'all see me on the stage? And I'm like, yeah, we saw you on the stage. And he, I said, hey, man, <laughs> remember what I said? I said, I said, yo, I got a question for you. Can you get me a meeting with Gerald Busby tomorrow? And the guy's like, oh, hey, nah, man, I ain't going to be able to, you know, swing that, yada, yada. And I was like, well, okay, we're going home tomorrow. Right. We'll talk to you later. Peace. And so we got in our plane and we left. The guys have a pending record deal with the legendary Motown Records. But before anything else can happen, another quick personnel change. So we get home and we tell Aaron and Noel and everybody. And then we tell them, hey, we're bringing Dave in the group. We got another guy we're bringing in. Because me and Todd decided we were decided we we're going to put Dave in the group. So we, you know, yeah, they got pissed at first. So we didn't care. It was, you know, kind of Todd's deal and my deal at this point. We were wanting to do our vision. What was the vision at the beginning? The vision at the beginning was, I will tell you, we were inspired by a straight up say it, new kids on the block. We saw some dudes singing and we were like, damn it, we can do that, man. And Todd had been in like choir and, and he was in, when he was in school, he was in chorus and all that stuff. The next step was an appearance on BET. 
Michael Bivens was booked on Donnie Simpson's show Video Soul to announce his development deal with Motown and introduce the world to his groups, Boys to Men, Another Bad Creation, and Sudden Impact. But BET was in Washington, D.C., a couple hours' drive from Virginia Beach. And you know how Aaron and Noel's parents are about these excursions. So we had to force his, now Aaron and Noel's parents, to let us take them. Because me and Todd were like, we're going regardless whether you go or not. We'll replace you. Someone's going with us. I mean, I don't care who it is. Yeah. You know, and so Aaron really wanted to do it. Aaron was, you know, he's still singing today. He really wanted to do it. So he shot up there with us and, his, and Noel jumped in the car. And we all jumped into Dave's 5.0 convertible trying to fit in the back seat. It was rough up three hours to D.C. That back seat small, <laughs> yeah. man. That back seat small. Um, we show up and uh, it's ABC. I guess, releasing the debut of Aisha. We are there and we see Boys to Men sing Mary Don't You Weep. And that's when we were like, wow, that's the singing group. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we learned real quick and we weren't that yet, man. We weren't, I would say, you know, we, we were still in the very beginnings of being a group. We were still writing our records. We were still trying to figure out what was going on. Who just, we were. Right. We were still developing ourselves. The next thing we had come up was we were supposed to, you know, we find out, okay, we're going to shoot Motown Philly video because Aisha just released. Now, Boys and Men's going to shoot their debut video in Philly. So we get a call and me and Todd are like, all right, when do we need to be there? And they said early in the morning on this day. OK, me and Todd left that night because we wanted to be there early. What was shooting that video like for you? Do you remember that day? Yeah, I can remember it. Just think, how about you, Todd? Do you remember it? Yeah, oh, man, it was it was different. Yep, I remember that big neon sign. I, I was like, yo, where can we put that sign? Can we have that sign? <laughs> yeah, we wanted that so <laughs> it bad. It was an actual sign? Yeah, a real neon they, they sign. couldn't do like effects back then, so they had a yeah, real neon a ne sign. It was actually a neon sign, yeah. man. There is an actual, practical, sudden impact neon sign, and it must still exist somewhere. Where is it? A museum? A private collection? I have a goal now. Find it, and Lara Croft Tomb Raider that shit. So were there were there other takes? Were there other concepts besides the point? Or was it do you just kinda get that shot and go? Let me tell you, man, we could we had no, no I idea. think that, that took a while. Well no, yeah. And the other <laughs> thing was they didn't have no you know it was like a last minute thing. We're doing a video and Bib's like, I'm gonna put my my next group in here. So they if you notice, Aaron's wearing a bow tie and the rest of us yep. are wearing ties. The reason why is because they only had four boys to men. So they had four ties. So Aaron, because he was one of the leads at the time, said, I'll go ahead and wear the bow tie. So all of the rest of us, and they were like, what are y'all going to do? And I was like, shit, I don't know what we're going to do. You know, Ben was like, all right, everybody point on the count of so-and-so. And so it was like, shit, I can point. You know, so then I, it's funny you say that because people would always ask me, we all the pointers or shit like that, you know, and different, different things. And then yeah. it, it was fun, man. It was, it was, I look back at those, I still see them things and crack up my kids. You know, they trip out the, you know, like, Dad, you weren't that cool. <laughs> you, know, like, you were that cool. I thought so. We thought we were. <laughs> it does appear to me, though, that Dave, it, Dave does seem to be pointing at the director. Yeah, Dave. Dave's always trying to be noticing a lot. He's always a little bit out on his own there. Yeah. Yeah. He's, okay. he's always been out there a little bit. So if we were all dressed in, let's say, urban, Dave's got on the skateboard stuff. He was a skater at heart mm -hmm. from Virginia. You know, he lives in Virginia Beach now. So right there where Pharrell's from, that whole area. But that Pharrell vibe, how he dressed, Dave was already doing that way back in the day. That was always his thing, vans and, you know, looking like that. So the video comes out. Do you do you feel like the pressure is on now to start releasing music? Yeah. 
I thought we were going to be the next group out, okay? Yeah. And Todd, to tell you, we, we thought, hey, man, we're next. You know, we, so we started putting stuff together. I would tell you, vocally, probably we weren't where we should have been. Okay, and that's where me and Todd, when, when the time comes, we do some switching around and stuff. But I would say it was a lot of pressure. We wanted to be that next group. We were trying to find a sound. You know what happens next. The guys sign with Capital. They record some music. Then Bivens asks them to leave Capital and go with Biv10 Records, which they do. And immediately Bivens' roster of artists starts to grow. Also, his vision for Sudden Impact takes a turn that is unbelievable. He just had a lot on his plate, man. He threw, we, we went from three guys and all CC one for all for one. There was 20 groups. I'm like, yo, what the hell just happened? You know, and now who are we behind? So we decided we were going to roll. And not just that, I remember his whole vision of us changed, man. He wanted us to be like, was it EMF? You were going to be a rave band? He was on some different stuff, man. And we were kind of like, yo, man, that's, that's not us, man. If you don't remember, in 1991, the British group EMF, incidentally also five trendy white guys, had a number one hit in America called Unbelievable. They were ravey. They wore baggy day-glow clothing. They had electronic beats. Their name stood for Ecstasy Motherfuckers. It was very of the time, but not at all what Sudden Impact was about. But on the other hand, Sudden Impact was about to not be Sudden Impact. First, we were Sudden Impact. Then it changed, and I looked, and it said W-H-Y-T-G-I-Z-E, and I'm like, Wick Gizzy? And he's like, no, white guys. And I'm like, Wick Gizzy? And I'm Dude, like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, not a Wick Gizzy. And I was like, white guys, white guys, that's not really, man. I'm half Asian, man. My mother's Vietnamese. But at that point, he said, it doesn't really matter. That's what y'all are going to be. And I was like, oh, wow, that's what we're going to be. Okay. And so actually, you know, we, like I said, it was creative differences. And I think also that we just weren't, we didn't know, he didn't know really what we were. We didn't know we were. It wasn't a thing of, you know, I don't think Biv hated us. I mean, that's a strong word. Anytime someone says about it, he just didn't know what to do. He, he used to tell us all the time we were his mom's favorite group at all of them. She had our, our poster in her house. That's a powerful poster is what that is. And I have it now. We will analyze it later in the episode. But first, I wanted to catch up with someone else who had a big moment in the pop music world of the early 90s. Someone whose time in the spotlight was also just before the internet. Someone who is, yesterday, today, and always, gonna make you sweat. Freedom Williams, smoking a cigar, enjoying a stogie. Where are you? I'm in Brooklyn. No discussion of popular music in 1991 is complete without Freedom Williams. He was the featured rapper on the CNC Music Factory songs Gonna Make You Sweat, Here We Go, and Things That Make You Go, Hmm. His voice was everywhere, and it still is. Try to go a week without hearing Gonna Make You Sweat. You can. Everybody over here, everybody over there. The crowd is live and I will prove this See? There it is. You just heard it. That song is a perfect example of the CNC Music Factory sound. Freedom's smooth flow alongside Martha Wash's powerhouse vocals. Of course, in the video for the song, those vocals were lip-synced by a model named Zelma Davis. Lip-syncing by models was another big thing in the early 90s. That's a subject for another podcast. Freedom left the group in 1993 for a solo career, and the Music Factory shut down not too long after that. I caught up with him at his home in Brooklyn, where he's having a cigar and sitting in front of literally dozens of bodybuilding trophies. We're going to talk about the whole CNC ride, what he's been doing since, and I swear I didn't do this on purpose. 
what freedom really means. I would like to talk to you about your experience of, you know, 1990 and 91. How, how did you come to be involved with CNC Music Factory? I was an engineer. I went to engineering school when I got out of college in 88, 89, and I went to work in quad recording studios, the, the now infamous quad studios where everyone seems to get into a shootout. All right, not everybody gets into a shootout at Quad Studios. I haven't. But it was the place where Tupac Shakur got shot five times in a 1994 robbery. There's a theory that the Notorious B.I.G.'s 1995 song, Who Shot Ya, is all about that attack. But Freedom kept it peaceful. He learned how to be useful as an engineer in recording studios, but what he really wanted was to be an MC. While you were engineering uh, for other MCs, were you like, get me in there? God, I could kill this. Or or did you just say, like, it's my moment will come later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I understand, you know, Busta Rhymes, when he left Leaders of the New School, he would hang out at the studios with a blunt and try to get into the session, which is a technique. You know, I used to get high with Sly Stone, you know. Sly Stone would come to the studio and look for me as an engineer. I was 22. We would go on the staircase and smoke a bone. What were your goals career-wise? Where did you see yourself in 20, 30 years' time? Well, to be, to, to make money, to be to be independent. You know, the goal of making music is nobody who really makes money tries to make money for the sake of collecting rectangle pieces of paper. <laughs> they make money for the sake of being able to fly first class and pay for their dental work and pay for their mom's cataract surgery or buy the car they wanted. Nobody really money in and of itself. So the goal of being famous was to be free. You pay for freedom here. You don't earn your freedom by being a humble man or a decent man. It costs money to be free. And so as a young kid in the streets of New York, any rapper, be it Public Enemy or KRS-One or Rakim or the Boogie Down Productions or MC Light, their goal is to get out of the hood, to be free. So that's why we, you know, it's art, you know, but shit, I got to get out of here. You know, so fame, fame was freedom. Fame is freedom, absolutely. Fame, Bowie. <laughs> we can't afford that, so we'll probably cut that out. <laughs> freedom did some engineering for David Cole and Robert Clavillis, the C's in CNC Music Factory. They had a dance project they were trying to put together, but they needed an MC. Freedom is an MC, and they clicked. And the defining dance pop songs of 1990 and 91 were born. But after a while, Freedom wanted to break out on his own. He fell out with one of the C's, and he embarked on a solo career. What kind of sound were you trying to capture for your solo record, post C&C? Similar. A similar sound. A similar sound. With just a little bit more edge, you know. And then, and then I made a lot of records that were real street records, too, that I shot, but people wouldn't, I couldn't get deals with them because they were like, ah, that's not what you're doing. That's not who you are. I was always, I always say, once you do a record like that, you can't really repeat that record. You have to venture off into a different sound, but the fans don't want you to venture off because they don't know you for that. But sometimes with pop music, you can be, you can get pigeonholed because pop music changes. In 1993, Freedom released his first solo single, Voice of Freedom, a slightly harder dance track with a chorus that sampled George Michael's Freedom 90. The video is up on YouTube, and it is pure, uncut 1993. Intricate choreography in front of moodily lit chain-link fences. Very season three of 90210 wardrobe on everyone except Freedom, who of course is shirtless and oiled up. 
The song has the line, dance till you wet your pants, and that's hard. It is wild. But by 1993, as you know by now, the charts had changed. There was conclusive proof that people wanted a different sound. So your record comes out and The Chronic comes out. Did you have a sense at the time of what was happening in the culture? Or is yeah, absolutely. Not, yeah. You knew it was it was a problem. You you could you you could because I loved the chronic record. I was like, oh shit, that's bananas. I remember in, I remember being in the limo. We were going on somewhere on the road in New York or something. We were out of the country or somewhere. And somebody in my crew has put the like, yo, I got I know that Drake record crazy. And we the whole hour in the limo, we was rocking it. I had a record out. No, we wouldn't even listen to my record. It was that fucking chronic record was bananas. You of course you understood. You know, when 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 Off the Wall came out, it was a game changer. You knew it. You know, you knew it. So how did that feel when you're trying to promote a record of your own? The music industry was becoming very opinionated at that point. You know, if you didn't smoke weed and bust guns, you weren't credible. It was one point through the early to mid 90s where I remember when the L.A. Cats was making records and all of these bloods was making records. And I would watch the videos and I would be like, yo, who is going to A&R that fucking project? There's like 30 dudes with guns. Like, yo, who is going to fucking do the project, the product management on that record? Like, you got to deal with those motherfuckers. <laughs> Good luck with that shit, homie. So Freedom's record deal with Sony fell apart. A few other things materialized and then faded away. By now, you know how that goes. Freedom is in Brooklyn now. He still produces records. He still mentors young artists. He sells real estate, does construction here and there, and by the looks of it, wins a lot of bodybuilding competitions. If fame is freedom, do you feel that you got free? No. 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 Because of me as a person, not, not generally speaking. You know, I'm looking for land now. I live in Brooklyn, but I want horses and cows now. I want freedom, you know, my own water. Freedom is not money. Money allows you to get off the grid to freedom. So money actually is a trap. The more you get, the more you want. When you get used to fine things, you don't know how to weld your own water. You don't know how to pick chickens from your own yard. You just, you used to go into the store. So are you free? If the people who live like that live to be 100, but you got cancer at 50, are you free? So... Freedom is not having everything you want. Freedom to me means giving up all the things you don't need. My recommendation is that if you have a chance to talk to Freedom Williams, take it. He's friendly, he's fascinating, he will make you go, hmm. Freedom learned his craft in the 80s so that he could meet people, make himself useful, and really seize his moment when it came around in the 90s. Sudden Impact did something else. They started with the marketing. Before they had a record out, they made a poster. They built the buzz before there was anything to buzz about, and it worked. It's that poster that got Michael Bivens to sign them and change the course of their lives forever. And now, it is in my inbox. So let's talk about that poster. Sudden Impact had their uniform white shirts and neckties. White guys had matching sport coats on a sweltering Houston afternoon. Outsiders for life were all do-rags and soul patches in the style of the year 2000. I've seen these guys in many of their various aesthetics, but in all of them, they were always styled by someone else. They were inscrutable, unknowable. I never had a sense for who these guys were until I saw this poster. I look at Two Special, all huddled up under the Chesapeake Bay Bridge in 1990, 
all 15 or 16 or 17 years old, and I finally feel like I know these guys. I grew up with these guys. Todd is all the way to the left, racing stripes shaved into his temples like vanilla ice, acid-washed jeans pegged at the ankle, dirty Nike shoes in the sand. Alan is next to him, wearing a bold polka dot, something David Silver would wear on a date with Donna Martin on 90210. Noel Kane is next to him, serving blue steel before we even had a name for it, in a t-shirt and shorts. And then there's Aaron, smiling the brash smile of the high school jock under what might be a teenage attempt at a mustache, a baggy Gucci t-shirt, barefoot, serving you toes. These are kids. These are kids with big plans. This is a high school dropout with something to prove. This is the son of a major in the Air Force trying to make his own way. This is a high school baseball star finding a new family with the kids from the other side of the tracks. And this is the handsome little brother who's along for the ride. I know these kids. So do you. Right now, under some bridge somewhere, a few of them are posing, making content for their Instagram or filming their video. There will always be kids misunderstood by their parents, giggled at by their peers, desperate to make their mark. I see what Michael Bivens saw in this poster. I see why it's his mom's favorite. I even see why it got them signed to a record label. It's timeless. Just from that damn two special poster. Just from the poster. The poster got us there. <laughs> that point got us to capital, I would say. <laughs> yeah, we pointed our way right to it. You know what got you there is boldness. Like, you guys took a huge swing. Yeah. We just didn't, I don't think we, it was something where we didn't have anything to lose at that point. Me and Todd felt this was the way, this is what we wanted to do. And it kept us, I would say, from getting into childhood mischief just because we were so driven on what to do you know, what did we have to do to get to the next point? And even when a lot of this stuff happens, like I'm sure you're going to get into, we still kept pushing. Like we still had, you know, just drive. By now, you know how this story unfolds. The boys go from Motown to Capitol to Biv 10, then off Biv 10 and onto Stone Creek. And then Stone Creek goes away and then onto Aaliyah's label Blackground and off of that. What I suspected is that by this time in their story, the guys were pretty fed up. The part of the story I hadn't heard was the night Todd finally vented that frustration. Blackground was a record label started by Aaliyah's uncle, Barry Hankerson. And one night, after another endless wait to get an album released, Todd had a few drinks and gave Barry a piece of his mind. I remember having a conversation with Barry. You remember that shit, Alan? I was drunk. Well, <laughs> I, I was. I, I got real drunk one night, man. And I'm going to tell you, I had a conversation with, with Barry's attorney, dude. I, I flat said, look, this is some BS shit, man, what y'all are doing, man. This is, this is, you know what I'm saying? It, it's, 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 it ain't right, man. You're playing God with me. You know what I mean? Let me fucking go. If you don't plan on doing something, let, let us fucking go. What are you holding on to us for? Obviously, obviously there's something there that you don't want to let go. You just don't know how to, you just don't know how to handle it. You know what I'm saying? Were we the best group in the world locally? No. You know what I'm saying? But there's a lot of other groups I could name, but I'm not going to, you know what I'm saying? Because. I don't do that shit, man. But we had we had good music at that time, man. Yeah, I know. It feels cathartic for me, too. This confrontation was a significant moment in that it got them dropped from Blackground. Their album, once again, didn't get released. Outsiders for Life self-released an album in 2006 with the tracks Ass Like That and Slip and Slide. It's up on the streaming services, if you want to listen. But by the time the album was released, the guys were burned out. Then it was time to grow the fuck up, Dave. Let's be real, man. We're getting old, man. It's it, it's it's about growing up, man. You know what I'm saying? Are we going to keep doing this or 
or, or, or am I going to be 30 years old living, you know, saying in a tent? What, what am I going to do with my life? You know what I mean? What am I, what am I going to do now? So we had to restructure. I wanted kids. I didn't want to run around chasing a dream. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we did that. We took a break. I think I took a break. I didn't do music for how long, Alan? Like 10 years, man. Yeah. Right? yeah. It was a while. It was like 10 years. It was like 10 years. I didn't touch music. I didn't do nothing. I would tell you this, though, man. I would think it's the time frame, too, man. We just, we came out, what we were doing, they're doing now. I would say time frame wise, if you look at it, we were just in the wrong time period. With social media, we could have pushed so much stuff and done our own podcast and done our own, you know, follow the band type things. Back then, there wasn't nothing but AOL Messenger. You know what I'm saying? We didn't have no no internet back then, man. We didn't have MP3s back then. The timing was just not right. The timing was never right. But their attitude about it is good. They're not bitter. And there's something that I have to know. It sounds like I already know the answer to this question, but are you glad you took that trip out to L.A.? Yes. Me and him, I would tell you, you can't pay for the experiences that we went through. You can go to college and people can talk about their college years. I watched some of the most Hall of Fame type things in the music business go. I met Aaliyah. I hung out with her. She told me I'm one in a million. I got video of it. I got video with boys to men and things that I probably, you can't even experience being at end of the road video shoot. The All the video shoots we went to, walking through these things and living, I would say it was the closest thing to being famous without being famous. Yeah, man. I think, I think man, you know, it's a journey we're all on, man. Even you, Dave. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. We're all on this journey, man. You know, you, you, you get to you get to a place, you go left, you go right. You know, you go right, you find out right wasn't the right way, you go left again. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's 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 all life's journey, man. It's everything's meant to be. You know, your story's going to play out, you know, and, uh, you know, life's a song, man. That's what I say. Life's a song, man. Look around you, man. So I have found three of the guys from Sudden Impact. All that are left are Noel Kane, who I have emailed a few times and he just hasn't gotten back to me. And the elusive, quiet Dave Smith, the guy who they tell me turned his back on the whole thing. After we get off the Zoom call, I decide to take a swing with Todd and see if maybe he has any idea how I can get a hold of Dave Smith. And he emails right back. Yeah, man, I talked to him last week. Here's his email. And so I email Dave Smith and he gets back in 30 minutes. Yeah, sure, I'd love to talk. This is so much easier than I thought it was going to be. I also ask Alan whether Who Are You is a diss track, and he says, yes, but we were in a pissed-off state of mind. We grew a lot from that, LOL. As to who they were dissing, I guess I'll have to get it from Dave Diss Track Smith himself. Michael Bivens, though, still nothing. But I want you to hear something Todd said as the Zoom was wrapping up, something that is made even more poignant by the fact that his connection is a little dodgy. It's definitely not over, man. It's definitely not over. It makes me think about what Scott Gimple said in the first episode of this show. I don't like the idea of endings because I don't like thinking that it's over for anybody. This is a show about audacity. This is a show about taking big swings. And I'm beginning to wonder whether these guys might be about to take another one. We'll find out on the finale of Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. This has been an Exactly Right production. Written by me, Dave Holmes. Produced by Hannah Kyle Crichton. Recorded, mixed, and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Additional engineering and assembly by Annalise Nelson. Music by Ben Wise. 
Artwork by Garrett Ross. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at ExactlyRight. And follow me at Dave Holmes. For more information, go to ExactlyRightMedia.com. Binge the show ad-free on Stitcher Premium. For a free month, head to stitcherpremium.com slash impact and enter promo code impact when you select a monthly plan. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.